0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, May 4th. Today, how grief and mourning are changing in the time of COVID-19. And finding dignity in a public burial ground.
1: My grandparents were born in Czechoslovakia. They met after the war, after World War II, when my grandfather came back as a soldier and realized his parents had died in Auschwitz and his country was very changed. And he saw my grandmother in a photograph that her sister showed him. And he said, that's the most beautiful woman in the world. I'm going to marry her. And a few days later he saw a woman sitting in a window which was the girl from the photograph and he convinced her to attend a bonfire with him that evening and she agreed and that's where he proposed and she said yes and they got married and ended up living in canada and having a little 1950s (laughs) lifestyle My name is Ella Smith. I am an actor living in Brooklyn, New York, currently on quarantine.
0: Ella is in the middle of a process that a lot of people around the country are also going through right now. As this pandemic is happening, she's dealing with the deaths of people she loves.
1: My grandfather lived to be 100. He turned 100 last July. And just two weeks ago, actually, my grandmother passed away and my grandfather followed five days later. My grandfather had pretty severe dementia for the past seven years. So he was in a nursing home and, you know, it was the type of thing where when I would go visit him, he I'd have to introduce myself to him 10 times throughout the visit and, Maybe he would hear who I was or not, but he always knew who my grandmother was. And she lived in a retirement community nearby and came to visit him every single day until she started getting really tired and really sick. Um, She was 93 and her heart was just failing. So she ended up having to go into the hospital. And just a few days after my grandmother was admitted to the hospital, they... Locked down, said no visitors. So that was really challenging because my mom wanted to be there and my uncle wanted to be there. And when things started to take a turn for the worse, my parents, who live in Minnesota, drove to Canada because they knew they had to be quarantined for two weeks before they were able to leave the house. But after my grandmother was moved out of a hospital into hospice, they said that if it was, you know, end of life, that they wouldn't keep my parents from seeing her. They drove to the hospice center and um were with my grandmother and she had just gotten some painkillers actually. So she was kind of perked up and the four of them were able to have a really amazing visit with lots of, I love you's and you know, talking and crying and, and on the day before she passed, I FaceTimed my mom and she was able to hold the, the camera up and I kind of shouted loudly, <laughs> grandma, I love you. Um, hoping she could hear me. And then she passed away the next day. And then the, my grandfather's nursing home, they weren't allowing any visitors obviously because of the virus, but my mom had just lost her mom and she begged them to let them in just for one visit so my uncle my dad and my mom were able to go and be in my grandpa's room and he was just sleeping on the bed with his eyes closed and that's when my uncle kind of whispered into his ear mom mom sends her love she's gone and it's okay if you want to go too and he you know didn't really change or or seem to register it but the next day my mom got a call that he had passed away as well which is just kind of crazy because We've kind of been preparing ourselves for him for, like, seven years, and it seems quite clearly as if he was just waiting for her.
0: Ella says that her mom and uncle had a short service after their parents were cremated. They buried a box with their parents' ashes mixed together, along with the wedding bands that they'd worn for 75 years. Ella, her brother, and all their cousins couldn't be there.
1: It would have been nice to be able to be part of that little service, that experience, you know, talking them away. I mean, yeah, my mother's definitely a wreck. So I wish I could have been there for her. And I think when you lose someone, you hold the rest of your family tighter. So it would be nice to be with family and kind of outweigh the loss with, you know, more family connection. What's worked for me has been doing little things that remind me of the, each of them. After my grandmother, it was baking her bread, and after my grandfather, his cocktail was Campari and soda. So I went out and got a bottle of Campari and, and you know, drank to him that way. So, it's, what little things can I do to kind of honor them and
0: keep them around, despite having to stay in my house? Coronavirus is making it harder to say goodbye. It's forcing us to change our burial traditions. It's complicating other rituals around death and dying. It's delaying mourning. And it's making grieving a lot lonelier.
2: Uh, The funeral was definitely different than what we would normally do.
0: That's Michael Weisblatt. He lives in New Jersey, and he lost his mother last month.
2: Normally, um, in an Orthodox funeral, once the hearse comes... Family and friends would carry the actual coffin. And on the way from the hearse to the grave site, we make seven stops along the way where their special prayers are said. And uh, they wouldn't let us do that. They said only their workers could carry the body. So the chauffeur opened up the back, three non-Jewish workers, which normally we would almost never allow unless they were personal family friends or something, not just random people, took it, put it on the car and started going. Then they wouldn't allow us to follow it. They only let the rabbi follow it, and even he had to stand back like 15 feet. Once they put it in the ground, the rabbi gave a small, very short speech. It it was not, it was very, very abridged and very limited.
0: Right now, Michael also can't recite the mourner's Kaddish. That's a prayer that you're supposed to say for the dead at the funeral, and every day for the next seven days. In Orthodox Jewish tradition, it's meant to be said with at least 10 Jewish men. There are not 10 men in his house. But because of Jewish tradition, he doesn't have the option of delaying these rituals, though that is something that many other people are considering.
3: I think the uncertainty surrounding everything going forward makes it very difficult for people to move forward in their grief. That's Camille Wertmann.
0: She's a professor who focuses on grief and bereavement at Stony Brook University. And she's been thinking a lot about how COVID-19 is changing how we grieve.
3: As you know, a lot of people make the decision to delay the funeral for several months. And the reason that they do that, of course, is because they want their loved one to have what they consider to be a proper funeral. But, of course, delaying the funeral makes it hard to move forward with grief. The funeral is really an important first step particularly if it is carried out in a way that makes the bereaved person feel supported to move forward without the loved one. I think the main reason that grief rituals are important is that they really help prepare the bereaved psychologically for what lies ahead. So basically gathering together helps mourners to strengthen the bonds they have with one another. It helps the mourner to feel confident to enter the social world. After the death occurs, they help the mourner to accept the reality of the loss. And a lot of times, this is very difficult. And really, this is the first step in the grieving process to be able to accept that this really has occurred. It's extremely difficult to arrange any kind of a funeral. Funeral homes are so overwhelmed, they have four to five times more people uh, to bury than they ever have had in the past. And some will allow a small gathering so that you can say goodbye with your immediate family or a few other people. Everybody is set up six feet apart. Everybody is wearing a mask and there's pressure to keep those services very short, about 20 minutes. People often have to scale down what they were planning a lot of people decide to go with some sort of a virtual funeral sometimes in addition to a small gathering and sometimes only a virtual uh, funeral and of course there are no hugs there are uh, no shared meals all of those physical contact things that sustain us really are not possible and those things sustain healing so We can do a very thorough and good job of planning a virtual funeral, but those elements are extremely difficult to include. People find it quite challenging to set that up in a way that honors the person who died, which of course is the most important thing that they want to do.
0: A lot of people are longing so much for that process to begin that they're patching together whatever they can in this moment. Rabbi Bruce Kahn in Maryland is trying to facilitate that for people in his community. Last month, he helped three siblings bury their mother by themselves. No one else was physically at the funeral, but people connected through video chat.
4: And it, it turned out to be much better for the family than they thought it would be because They were imagining being completely isolated, alone. And they weren't because of this technology that permitted 130 other people to join them, even though they weren't physically present.
0: Some of the people he's counseling through loss are having trouble with all the delays. But he says that talking to clergy is helping them to get to the part of the grieving process that feels more familiar.
4: When you need a doctor, a physician, Before you're cured, it's helpful. You start, you feel helped by being with the physician and talking things over with the physician. Even though you're not yet, you may not have started the treatment and you're not cured. But just getting going with a person that you're going to need to move forward makes you feel less delayed and less frustrated, more encouraged. And so by uh, working with clergy, even if you can't proceed exactly as you want, you get in touch with the person who can help you get there and that has beneficial impact. That helps you get to a better place.
5: My father, may uh, God have mercy on him. He was the perfect example, you know, perfect, you know, husband to my mother, uh, perfect father to, you know, my, myself and my siblings. He was active in the community. Holistically, he was the ideal individual that anybody would uh, want to be associated with in the community.
0: That's Ahmed Nasser. His father passed away from coronavirus in March in New York. His family couldn't be in the room when it happened or really anywhere near him.
5: It was difficult. You know, we're not going to deny that fact. But we knew and my father knew that whatever God had decreed for him, it was what was best for him. Because we have a belief in our religion that says that a person is not afflicted with any harm except that he's rewarded for that. Uh, regardless of how big or small that harm is.
0: Ahmed says that one of the ways that he could comfort his dad from the other side of the glass was with text messages, with specific recitations from the Quran.
5: And you would see that other messages he just didn't wasn't didn't even bother looking at the other messages because his mind was somewhere else. His mind was he wanted to concentrate on that relationship with God at them at that time
0: and when his father died ahmed knew that his grief and mourning should also be guided by their religion the family worked with their local mosque to have as close to a traditional ceremony as they
5: could in a normal situation if a person is living before praying the five daily prayers a person is supposed to wash make the wudu the the purification right so when a person dies we give him that final washing And if a person who is living does not have water, for example, if he's in the middle of a desert and all the water that he has is drinking water, right, the religion is not going to instruct him to use that drinking water to wash his hand and his face and do that ablution, right? In that case, he's to do a dry ablution. And the same applies for the deceased. If, for example, they died from an illness where we cannot you know, wash, physically wash the body, just like the COVID-19 disease, then we do on them what's called the dry ablution.
0: And even though it was weird and sort of complicated to safely get together to do a final prayer for his dad at the cemetery, Ahmed said that he felt a sort of closure.
5: Our religion did not leave any details untouched or unexplained. So it was weird because we never practiced it. That was the weirdness about it. But besides that, I felt comfortable, I felt fulfilled. God had placed in my heart and in my brother's hearts and sister's heart and my mother's heart, this patience, this tranquility, knowing that where he was at that time and now is is at a better place and that he one day will meet. In our religion, it tells us of ways where we can benefit the deceased to lessen the trials that he's going through, if he's going through any trials in the grave, or how to elevate his status of you know, comfort while he's being in his grave, what there are practical things that we could actually do to benefit him. So there's a very famous hadith which is a prophetic saying that if the son of Adam dies uh, his actions cease, except for three things: a continuous charity, knowledge that the people benefit from, or a righteous son who supplicates for him. So I explained to my kids that you know we want to think of a charity. We want to think collectively, as sons and as grandsons, what kind of charity we were we gonna, we're gonna start up for my father. May God have mercy on him. And I told them that you know their grandfather had started them on a path of Quran memorization. So the more they continue in that path, the more their grandfather will get benefit from. And the last uh, of the three actions is a righteous son who supplicates for him. So don't forget to pray, don't forget to supplicate for Giddu, which is, you know, uh, the Arabic word for grandfather.
0: And for people like Ahmed and Ella, part of surviving this loss is just in remembering.
1: So my grandparents always had half a grapefruit for breakfast, like their whole lives. I never liked it, but recently I've been getting into grapefruit. (laughs) This is so silly. Somehow it just feels like keeping those traditions and those rituals alive and and their habits and things feels like there's still, There. They're still part of you. They're still influencing you.
0: Yeah. This story was reported by Post Reports producer Rennie Zvernofsky and religion reporter Michelle Borstein. As the coronavirus outbreak in New York takes more and more lives, private cemeteries and funeral directors have been overwhelmed. So last month, city officials announced that some COVID victims would be buried, at least for the short term, on a city property known as Heart Island. And for a lot of people, that was a very scary image. Cadavers stored in refrigerated trucks outside of hospitals and then taken to what is essentially a mass grave. It's not like those
6: refrigerator trucks just go straight to Hart Island and they open up the back and throw everybody in a pit and cover it over. That isn't the process. What you're seeing in the videos is, is a very efficient burial process that we're unfamiliar with, but it is a process that has worked for New York City over time.
0: Melinda Hunt is the director of the Heart Island Project and an expert on the long history of the island.
6: Heart Island is, it's in the eastern Bronx within the Long Island Sound. There's sailboats in the summer. It's a wildlife sanctuary out there. It's a very beautiful, peaceful part of New York City.
0: And for well over 100 years, Hunt says that this is how New York City has buried its dead on the island.
6: This system is tried and tested over time. It was developed during the Civil War such that the Union Army could quickly bury soldiers on the battlefield and then return and disinter them and rebury them in national cemeteries or return them to their families. So that's why New York City has adopted this system of burials, is the sepulcher laws require that if the family did not agree to a city burial, that the city will disinter for free and return the remains to families. And this works quite well. The city will disinter up to 25 years after burial.
0: And why is the city burying COVID-19 patients there on Heart Island? Well, the city buries all unclaimed
6: human remains on Hart Island. And unclaimed doesn't mean unwanted. It just means that, for whatever reason, a private funeral director was not retained. All human remains have been buried on Hart Island since 1869, so for 150 years. There's no way of knowing the exact number of people who have been buried on Hart Island, but if you project, it's well over a million people that have been buried since 1869. Essentially, Hart Island is the melting pot. It is where waves of immigrants are buried. It's where children lost during periods of high infant mortality were buried because the families didn't have any extra money. Heart Island has absorbed all of those people. The problem that we have during a pandemic is that if a lot of people don't agree to a city burial, it's going to take a very, very long time to disinter all those bodies. So it's actually a lot more affordable than a cremation or a private burial. The beauty of this particular burial process is it's very highly efficient. I mean, Yes, you're in a plot with a bunch of other people, but that's how you live in New York City anyways, right? We're all in the same building together, and we just kind of get along. In terms of the burials, it's a very secure way to be buried. Each box is, in fact, a grave, and by this burial process, the city knows where every single body is within a plot of 150
0: that's really interesting what you're saying, because I feel like when I have been seeing people talk about what's happening on Heart Island right now and and the number of people who are being buried in, in what are being described as mass graves, people talk about it like it's something shameful or something that shouldn't be happening. But what you're saying is that there might also be something beautiful about that. that it's a different way of burying people, but still one that holds a lot of respect for the people who have died.
6: It's a very democratic system of burials. When you go into a cemetery, there's sort of a hierarchy because there are enormous monuments for some people and almost nothing for other people. But on Heart Island, everybody's buried exactly the same with the same dignity. I really think that people shouldn't be afraid of agreeing to a city burial. I think it's actually, in a very disorganized time, the best choice. There's a very spiritual quality to Heart Island when you get there, just knowing that well over a million people are buried there, and you're part of this historic place.
0: Melinda Hunt is the director of the Heart Island Project. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This week, we're going to answer questions about personal finance and the pandemic. If you have questions for our personal finance columnist, Michelle Singletary, record a voice memo of yourself asking your question and email it to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.